The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 3, and it's verses 9 through 22. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning. I'm, uh, as Jennifer said, my name is Richie Sessions, and um, I'm glad to be here this morning. My brother, Spencer, is actually a ruling elder here, Spencer and his family. Um, And so that's pretty cool. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I work with a ministry called RUF, Reform University Fellowship. I was on campus at Vanderbilt University for seven years as the campus minister. Now I'm an area coordinator for what's known as the South Central Region. I oversee 15 campuses. So um, I am uh, honored to be able to open God's word. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you alone know what every heart needs and every life needs. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would do your work even through this sermon as you do through this service. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the the letter of First Peter that you've been going through, it's all about suffering. There's a lot about suffering because we know that the people during this time, the people that he's addressing this letter to, are suffering 
And they're suffering at the hands of people who hate the gospel. And they're also suffering just because life is hard. And so it's easy to look at this letter and just think, oh, it's all about suffering. But really, 1 Peter is about hope. It's about hope in the midst of suffering. And the whole rest of this letter, like the the last third of this letter, is all about practical ways that hope reveals itself as we're suffering. Y'all need hope? I do. But how does hope work? If you really think about it, how does hope work? Maybe you think of it almost like as a wish. Like, I hope things get better, almost like fingers crossed. But hope in the New Testament isn't a wish, it's a certainty. And Peter is just, there's a thread of hope all throughout this letter. And my, probably my, my favorite place is in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A living hope. A hope that is alive. Hope works when we need it. In fact, it's not until you need hope. Life has gotten so hard, so unpredictable, so scary, so unmanageable that we sink down into this living hope out of desperation. It's kind of like flashlights. Not a flashlight. You don't think about flashlights anymore because you think, I have a flashlight on my phone. But do you remember those, like if you're my age, we used to have flashlights that were like 20 pounds. Like the silver ones that got all rusty and gross. But you know, if the power's been out a long time and it gets really dark in your house and the power out, power's been out so long that you actually can't recharge your phone, you have to go back to an old school Walmart flashlight, go find it in some weird drawer, right? And go find like a Duracell, what in the world? And put it in there and then boom. But you do not think about the flashlight until you need a flashlight. And when you need a flashlight, is there anything better than a 10-pound flashlight? That's what Peter is saying, and he's learned it. He's telling these people, you're going to go, Jesus told us we're going to go through horrible things sometimes. He says they'll be for a little while. We'll suffer for a little while. We're going to go through things, and they're going to be scary, and you're going to be disoriented. But in those moments... You go directly to the living hope that is imperishable, that will never fade, that will never spoil, that is completely rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. 
And so here's how hope works in three things today. This hope, like a flashlight when we need it, very practical. How does hope work in our relationships? How does hope work in our words? And then how does hope work in our suffering? The flashlight of hope, that's the title. How does it work in our relationships, our words, and our suffering? Let's go. How does it work in our relationships? Look what he says in verse eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this For to this you were called that you may attain a blessing. And so he uses these five characteristics to describe how hope works in a world we're not in control of, relationally. Here's how hope works. And one commentator, I like the way he says it. He said, these aren't just five characteristics, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. He's not just, these aren't five random things. He says, these are virtues, characteristics, that are like five fingers on one hand. They're all unified by one thing. They're exactly what Jesus looked like and looks like. These are a description of the person of Jesus Christ in his grace, love, and compassion. There is this unity that all of these characteristics have and they're kind of like aspen trees. Now, we as the people of God are like aspen trees. I was in Colorado several years ago, and I just love aspen trees. They're so beautiful. And so I did what any, like, nerd does. I Googled aspen trees. I wanted to know more about these majestic trees on the, on the mountainside. Do you know that aspen trees, that one aspen is is part of this cluster. They're actually called a stand of aspens. They're actually called a a group or a stand of aspens. They're actually all one organism. Their root system that you see on the side of a mountain, they're all one thing. They're not lone trees. And so it's kind of like one of the things that's said in the New Testament and in in Peter's letter is that the people of God are all connected this way organically in the person of Jesus Christ. That we are not just these single trees, but we all live together because we are all united to Jesus. And this union to Jesus isn't like an opinion or something that we hope. It is a fact. Whether you like it or not, If you're in Christ, so is the other person that's with you is also in Christ. Now you see why he says, have unity of mind. Be like-minded. He's not saying be uniform. There's great diversity in this unity, right? There's great diversity, but be like-minded in what? And what is essential about our hope in Jesus? What unites us? is that you and I are really broken and we really need Jesus and we are really united in him. Like what is the one thing that could unite us is how messed up we are, right? And then the next thing that unites us is how absolutely we are covered in Jesus Christ. Both of those things unite us, which then gives us a like-mindedness 
the way that we come together doesn't mean we always agree with each other, but it means that, that we're able to begin to see each other through the eyes of Jesus just a little bit. When he says, have brotherly love, when he says, have sympathy, you know, I've preached a lot of sermons, and, and over the years, and I preached a lot of sermons to, to college students, and something I used to always want for my college students is I wanted us to be more united as a group. And it bugged me that they were like little cliques. Y'all don't have cliques at Christ Pres, right? No cliques. But these little cliques, which is completely inconsistent, right, if we're united to Jesus and our brokenness and in Christ, to be clicky doesn't work. There's an inconsistency right there. So he calls us to a like-mindedness, a unity, a brotherly love, that kind of stuff. And so here's what I would do. This doesn't work, by the way. It's kind of like with your kids. Like, be better friends. Just be better friends. Stop being clicks. Didn't work. Totally backfired. It was stupid. But then I started realizing... Just appealing to this and just saying, oh, you come to Christ Pres, you see each other like once a week, let's all kumbaya. It kind of feels phony, honestly. But imagine this. What if we began to, to look at Jesus first just before you look at the person? See, if you just look at the person, you can see something you don't like. If you just look at the person, but if you begin to, imagine this. Just a little bit. Jesus, how do you see her? Jesus, how do you see him? Changes everything. This unity, this brotherly love, why could we say, how could you have brotherly love? Brotherly love for someone that you don't like. How is that possible? What a miracle. Now, you, now you're beginning to see the flashlight of hope, right? There's no light on. You can't fake it. How do you have brotherly love for people that are totally different than you? Imagine this. If Hebrews chapter 2, we are told that Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers. So this person that you don't like, that's totally different than you, that wears their hair differently, that has tattoos or doesn't have tattoos, the person that lives on this side of town, all those different things. Imagine Jesus saying of our sin, I am not ashamed to call that person my sister and that person my brother. You see, when we get the last word on other people, we can cut them off. But when Jesus begins to get the last word on people, it changes things. It forces us down into this great word, humility, which is really the mother of all these attributes when we look at our relationships. Humility. I used to be really proud of how humble I was. That was a little, I don't know why I said that. Okay. But this word humility is fascinating. The word humility Low, humble, is from the, from the Latin word humilis, which comes from the word humus, which means earth. To be humble is to be earthy. It's to be human. It means to be connected to your own humanity, your frailty, your 
finitude, the fact that you are not limitless, the fact that you are imperfect, the fact that you will return to dust. It means being this earthy person rooted in who you really are, good, bad, and ugly, is humility. Jesus said, I am humble, Matthew 11. He was earthy. And you'll see, here's what happens. Humility does this when you've seen it, when I've seen it in people, it creates this kind of earthiness, this kind of rootedness. It creates this wild freedom. At one of the most humble men I ever knew was Knox Chamblin, my seminary professor at RTS. He, he like, was a C.S. Lewis expert and a New Testament expert. He was brilliant. He could have totally flexed. But he was the most humble man ever, so soft-spoken and meek and mild in his 70s when he was teaching us. And here's something he told us. He says, you have to be free from people to be free for people. See, humility, if you're so rooted in Christ, do you see what this happens? Our rootedness in Christ, our rootedness in our need for Christ, it frees us from other people. It frees, you, it frees you from yourself. Humility means that you don't get the last word on you, and it means that other people don't get the last word on you either. It means God's love gets the last word. The one who embraces you in all your faults. The one who sees past, present, and future. Do you see the freedom? Where the spirit is, there is freedom, the apostle Paul says. So this relational humility that flows over in an aspen tree-like mindedness that creates this unity and it all forces us down out of ourself to need Jesus more and more. Do you see what he's saying? Second, our words. How do our words turn the flashlight of hope on. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. There is nothing that reveals your interior world more than your tongue, than the words that you say. Jesus talked about this. His brother James talked about this. The tongue is like the faucet of the heart. It reveals what's really inside of you. That's super convicting for me, especially when I make my living with my mouth, right? How often I say things that I shouldn't say. But think about deceit for a second. Nothing destroys unity like deceit. Remember Tim Keller talking about this once in a sermon. And the question like, why do we lie? Like, why? He was like, why do you tell a lie? And he says, why do I tell a lie? I tell a lie because I want someone to think that I'm better than I actually am in the moment. And that person's approval is more important to me than Jesus is in that moment. Here's, he gives an example. Someone comes up to me and says, hey, did you send that email I told you to send last week? And you're like, yeah, I sent it. And I lied. I didn't send it. And the reason, he said, the reason I lied about sending the email is because I wanted this person to think I'm competent, and I'm not competent all the time. And so in that moment, my rootedness in Christ, my identity in Christ, my humility in Christ, that didn't matter, that person's approval. He called it the sin underneath the sin, right? 
So when Peter says, whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Think about this. Why do you lie? Come on, liars. Why do you lie? It's bro- I realize it's gross when you think about it, but the power's out now. And so you really need hope. Think about when you lie... And you don't even need to lie. You ever lied like that? You just lie. Like, I just said a lie. Like, that was the stupidest thing ever. I just lied for no reason. And it probably is not for no reason. Somehow, it made you look a little bit better in the eyes of that person. Maybe even a little more authentic. That's my generation's version of cool, right? It's not being, like, self-righteous and together. It's like, oh, I'm so broken. You lied about that. But here's how hope works. You don't need to be great in the eyes of other people. You are his beloved. You are his beloved. You are beloved in your ungreatness. You are freed to be flawed. Did you send the email? No. How outrageous. No, I did not. You're fired. That's not going to be good. But you can weather it. No, I didn't. I didn't. You you told me to do it, and I didn't do it. How could we have the freedom to do that? Do you realize how crazy you have to be rooted in an eternal living hope in order to do that? Like, God accepts me so much that I can think this person, this person can look at me as not having it all together. And by the way, that's the thing that unites us is that we don't have it all together. No, I'm a slacker. I didn't. It's a crazy free person. That's a dangerous person, isn't it? It's really refreshing When you encounter it, hope makes us honest. Hope hope makes us unified and hope makes us honest. It makes us humble. Now let's to the third one. What about our suffering? Look at verse 13 with me. Now, who is here, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, rooted. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you for good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's better to suffer for doing good if that's God's will than for doing evil. In other words, like... uh, it's better to suffer for doing good than to be suffering for being an idiot, right? Which we suffer for that too. And God's sovereign over everything. Listen to what he's saying here. In the midst of our suffering, even unjust suffering, how powerless do you feel when we suffer, especially when we suffer unjustly. Isn't that the trademark of trauma is the powerlessness that we feel? How 
utterly shattering it is. Just because, just because suffering is temporary, as Peter says, doesn't mean it doesn't shatter you. And he's not saying that we are to be sadistic. That's another trap, by the way. Like, oh, I'm so glad I'm suffering. That's stupid. It's a weird version of Christianity. He's saying that as we suffer, we bear the wounds of suffering, and nothing makes us cling to Jesus more than suffering. I hate that it's that way. Nothing will destroy everything else that you're depending on, like suffering. And when we suffer, even though it's temporary and it is shattering, we suffer as his beloved, we are still as safe, as unified, as in Christ as we ever have been, even as we suffer. And it's kind of like this. I was walking at the Williamson County Rec Center earlier this week, just on a little stroll, you know, just having a nice little stroll. And the rain, it just, it wasn't supposed to rain. I looked at the radar, but this, this random cell went right over me, of course, right over me. And it wasn't just like a sprinkle. It was torrential. I had my phone. I was like trying to like, ugh, trying to like, I put it in my hat to hide it, like to keep it, I don't know what I was doing. I was just like, and there was no place to hide. It was like, and I started thinking about something. This storm came out of nowhere and it blew over out of nowhere. But I was on this path that had been there for years. And the rain came, but the ground remained the same. And I wonder if that's not a little bit like the suffering that Peter's talking about. It's not fun. Sometimes it's very random and it comes out of nowhere. And every one of us are going through it in some way, shape, or form, and we will go through it. But the ground, imperishable, unfatable, and will never spoil, kept guarded in heaven for you, by the Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Yes, we will suffer. But the ground, after it was over, that ground was just like, bring it. Henry Nouwen put it this way, who can escape suffering and death? We still have a choice. We can deny the reality of life or we can face it. When we face it, not in despair, but with the eyes of Jesus, we discover that where we least expect it, something is hidden that holds a promise that is stronger than death itself. You talk about flashlights. Jesus lived his life with the trust that God's love is stronger than death. Jesus lived his life with the trust that God's love is stronger than death and therefore does not have the last word. 
and he invites us to face the painful reality of our existence with the same trust. And so that's why Peter writes in verse 18 something that would have been tattooed inside of him. Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive through the Spirit. That's just a repeat of the gospel. Because y'all, if there's anyone that knew what failure was, that knew what pride was, that knew what deceit was, that knew what competition was, who denied Jesus to save his own neck three times, and then Jesus Christ came and saw them, and they had gone back to fishing. (laughs) And it's one of my favorite scenes. After they had gone back to fishing, they, they cast the net that Jesus Christ was there on the shore, and he said, had you caught any fish? And they said, no, we haven't. He said, cast the net on the other side. And they caught so many fish that the net began to break. And there's this wonderful scene where the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, looked at Peter, and he said, it's Jesus. And you know what Peter does? The impulsive, control freak He jumps into the Sea of Galilee and swims to Jesus. And he never stopped doing that. You see, when you and I meet Jesus, where we are most broken, most impossible, when we experience him where we feel most cursed, the hope shines bright brightest in the darkest place. And you know what happens? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine. The world goes, what's that? What is that? Why do you have hope in the face of death? How can you have hope when you're so wrecked? How can you have hope in the face of your failures? How is that possible? They're not looking at you because you're awesome. That's why none of us do evangelism, because we think it's us. It is him in us, the hope that is within us. And then people say, what is that inside of you? You say, I've got a hope that transcends my life. Do you want to hear about it with gentleness and respect? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being able to open this portion of your word. And more than anything, thank you, Jesus, for being everything we need. Thank you for being sufficient. Help us, would you give us faith to trust you more? Amen.